Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Legends podcast. Today is December 9th in Japan and December 8th, where we're talking to the beautiful Francesca Conate. Is that right, your pronunciation? That, that was so beautifully pronounced, yeah. I did it in the <laughs> Japanese way. Exactly, <laughs> and I'll take it. Yeah, so, um, and um, we are in about month 10 or 11 of the mm. coronavirus. Um, mm. This will be released later in the month. You're probably gonna be my Christmas launch actually which is lovely. <laughs> it is. I'm honored. Mama Christmas or um, I don't know <laughs> the, uh, the the star who came. Oh I love that. I love yeah, that. Yeah um, so today um, I believe there are many 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 ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and legends and as Francesca just beautifully put it, you don't have to be recognized as a legend to live like one. And that's what we're going to hear from her today. What an incredible legend she is. What an amazing story she has. But first, a quick bit of background about her. So um, Africa is her ancestral home. America mm -hmm. is her birthplace and Japan is her spiritual home. And that's where we met. Um, she is a travel specialist certified by the Japan National Tourism Organization. We met when we were both uh, kind of doing business English consultation mm -hmm. at, I remember, Shinsei Bank? Shinsei Bank, exactly. Shout out to Shinsei Bank. <laughs> Which is actually amazing because Shinsei literally means new life. So just to put that into, that's what Shinsei means. Literally, that's the kanji. Yeah. So to think that we made this new meeting and opportunity that came full circle all of these years later. Yeah. In different places. And here we are. So yes, Sensei, how appropriate. Amazing. And um, very active in the Africa in Japan society mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or group and um, has been doing this for so, so many years. Mm -hmm. You lived in um, Japan for how many years? I lived in Japan for 13 years. 13 years, wow. Yeah. And you were at KDDI, Shinsei Bank, um, business trainer for Toshiba. So many, mm -hmm. many big names in there as well. Um, 
And I just remember you as being this incredibly warm, confident. Mm -hmm. um, it was just such a pleasure to be around you. And I've always remembered that. And for some reason, I stumbled mm -hmm. into the uh, Africa in Japan group, probably through our mutual friend, Petra. Mm -hmm. Watch this space for her entering. Yeah, the hell, can't wait for that. I would love yeah. to see <laughs> Next year. And um, so, and... And so I have my, so you're constantly in my mind and in my newsfeed and of course mm. friends on Facebook and you post an update all the time. And I just think that your story is so amazing and we're gonna, we're gonna hear about it now. I'm not gonna give anything away from later when we come up to date now. Um, such a generous person, such an amazing soul, such an inspiration to many, many people. I see that mm. word connected with you all the time. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome you, Francesca. Thank you so much. Thank you for such a heartfelt introduction. And you allow me to kind of reflect on all that we've been through, not only in terms of meeting, but just my experiences up to now. Mm -hmm. I think most of us, and understandably so, we're kind of living with what's going on right now. But to take a minute and just reflect where I've come from, what I've done, to hear from you the impact I've had on you and how you feel I've impacted other people around me is very heartwarming yeah. to me. It made me feel actually just a little bit more connected mm. to everything around me. And I really appreciate that introduction because I feel like, yes, I am a global citizen. Yes, my family is around the world. And yes, I'm here to share my story to help be of inspiration or guidance or support or love to anyone who needs it, who hears it. Oh, so thank you for that opportunity. You're, you're absolutely so welcome. And the, you know, the the opportunity is all mine to, to, mm. to listen to you. So let's let's get into it then, shall we? Sounds good. Yes, please. Uh, so tell me about your background, your ancestry, and your family. Of course. So I was born in California. My father was born and raised in Sierra Leone, West Africa. My mother's African-American. So actually, I make a joke, but it's very true. I am truly African-American. Usually we say that for people of color living in America, but my father is for real from Africa, and I'm happy that I, I still have that connection to my family. And I'll share it a little bit later how it was lost and how I was able to reconnect. And that's what made me so close and so passionate about Africa in general, Sierra Leone in particular. But grew up in California, the oldest of three, went to an all-girls boarding school, shout out to San Domenico, <laughs> my love for the world. That my first roommate, um, I actually remember Camilla DeWitt from Guatemala. And so this is what started the whole interest. And that's when I started getting, I'll say semi-political with things like um, Amnesty International. And that's where my interest of other people, other situations really began. And I feel absolutely grateful mm -hmm. for my childhood. My father, unfortunately, when I was in about eighth grade. And so my mom has always been like my strength, my rock, my anchor, my cheerleader, and everything that I've accomplished to this day, I definitely, definitely and directly attribute to her. The opportunities that she gave me, the um, chance to go beyond what was normal, what other people did, and finding a way to see where I fit, not telling me what I should do or having these expectations to meet, but just to see where will my personality and my interests naturally take me. And um, I've been doing that since I was 13 because <laughs> that's when she started it for me, which is just exploring and saying, that sounds interesting. That sounds different. 
I like to pursue it and see if that's a good fit for me. And then having that freedom and autonomy to experiment had me go down very different paths that I'm grateful for and that I still maintain that attitude to this day. Like I am so down for anything that is new, that is interesting, that would make other people be like, why would you want to do that? My attitude is why would I not? <laughs> so loving that I have that spirit and that it has not diminished over the years. And that spirit that came from your mom, where do you think she got that spirit from? Honestly, I think she was, and I've talked about this with her. I think she was just very nurturing to me in the sense that my mom was born in the 50s. So that was a little bit of a different reality for her. Mm-hmm. Um, as a young girl, she definitely had to deal with racism and the stress of being in a school in a, in a situation that was less than supportive and accommodating of who she was as a young black woman mm-hmm. going to school, her intelligence being measured in questions against others. Luckily for me, being born in the 70s and in California, it was a completely different experience. And that experience, I think she definitely went out her way to nurture that for me. So I always felt comfortable. I never felt I was in comparison of, of anyone, be it better or less than. And so that allowed me to see the world in a more safe way. So I think she was doing for me and providing for me what she never had the opportunity to do and to experience. What do you think is the influence of being uh, the eldest? I'm the eldest too. (laughs) When I was growing up, I was not impressed with that. Now I'm absolutely grateful that I was first born and that I was the eldest because you take on a different level of responsibility because you're the closest one to your parents. And as in my case, I saw my mother struggle and I saw her make sure that our family was taken care of after my father passed, that she made sure we had what we needed to succeed. And because of that, I feel like firstborn tend to have a, not always, but a closer connection to the parents and a closer desire to see their parents do well, be well, in the sense that we will take the initiative to make sure, can I make my parents' life better? I think others, and no disrespect, because I know there's middle kids and babies and all that other stuff, but I feel like the firstborn is always going to have um, an interesting relationship with their parent, and sometimes it might even reverse where the child is feeling more parental, like, hey, mom, <laughs> I think you're up too late, or you're doing too much, or kind of wanting to be that, that role in her life now, and so I have to remember I'm still the child, and I will always be the child, but it gives me a sense of, um, I don't know, I guess it's the combination of responsibility but gratitude for what she did for me so I want to make sure that I'm always there for her and making her life as easy as possible whether it's you know helping out around the house giving advice support just doing what I think needs to be done to make her life easier beautiful just reminded me to text my mom today (laughs) (laughs) oh Yeah, that's that's so beautifully put. And I think as well, when we're the firstborn as well, mm-hmm. we're learning how to do life together. Like they True. have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> they're just doing that's their a really best. Good observation. You're right. So we're kind of like, yeah, we are partners. It's still the parent parent-child relationship, but there's also like, let's do this together. And I know you're doing your best because it's easy for our parents who want to give us so much to beat themselves up. I should do more, could do more you're doing more than enough. If you're giving me love and attention and you're making sure that all that you do is going for my benefit, I receive that, I appreciate that. I really feel my level of appreciation that I have for relationships in general comes from that, from this first important relationship. Mm, mm. 
no if we just like now let's have a little talk about your dad and of course so young and he was so young when he passed wasn't he he was um something that i'm very grateful for that he was young so as i said he was born and raised in sierra leone as i was growing up ironically he really didn't speak about sierra leone and africa a lot to me as a child when he died i was about 12. so it wasn't that i necessarily grew up with this strong sense of uh connection but i knew it was important to him and on his last trip when he went to sierra leone to visit his family he came back to the states and he had lost a lot of weight he was gone and we took him to the hospital at the time and they said that he had stage four lung cancer, never smoked, no negative lifestyles, but you know, cancer is so erratic. There, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And so as you can imagine, that was absolutely devastating. And I was, and I still am to this day, my father's daughter in so many ways, my temperament, my attitude, my preference of logic over emotion. And we can talk about that later because sometimes I guess that's been a problem for others, <laughs> not for me, but the thing that I'm the most grateful for about that time in my life was that I had such a wonderful relationship with him, but being diagnosed with cancer so suddenly, and I take it as a blessing in retrospect, was that from his diagnosis to when he passed was a very short time. And I shared that to mean I didn't have to watch it ravage him physically. Mm-hmm. So if I think of my father to this day, and he died in 1984, my image of him was when he was strong and when he was vibrant. Mm-hmm. And I love that that is the image that I have when I think of them. There's, I would say it's probably been mm, maybe longer than 10 years, 15, 20, I don't know, when I finally got to the point where I no longer felt that sadness mm-hmm. because I know that my father stays with me at all times. And so having that connection, that relationship, and knowing that I'm literally looked after, that I'm literally guided and supported has given me so much strength to do a lot of the things that people are like, I can't believe you did that. Um, I can, and I also know why. A lot of the things I do may seem like a singular feat. To people on the outside, there's nothing I do by myself. I don't care if I travel by myself. I don't care if I live by myself. There's nothing that I do by myself. And knowing that I've got that support and that protection over me means everything. Um, How long was it before? between his diagnosis and his passing? Literally months, because he actually died on October 1st, which is nine days before my birthday. My birthday is 10-10, he died on Mm 10-1. He came back that summer, so really, I don't know if it was even more than two months. It was very fast, very sudden, very fast. There's a couple of things in here that I want to just comment on. The first is, you know, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? The instant we say lung cancer, we instantly say he didn't smoke, he had no negative things with lifestyle. It just reminds us very, very much, and we'll get into this a bit later, is that 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 there's no moral, there's no moral judgment to be given on on disease. It doesn't Correct. it doesn't go oh you've been naughty i'm coming to right you know what i mean coming for you or like there's no exactly there's there's very little control that we can have over those kinds of things and there's some pretty yeah there's there's some and i would include myself in this i've got into certain kind of aspects of coaching where 
we imply that there's somehow we invite this stuff into our bodies, which I just find quite, I, I don't know, I feel very, um, I don't feel good about that kind of approach anymore. And it's kind of, it's developing. Right. And especially over this last 10 months, it's the, the kind of the ideas about disease and, you know, how, oh, oh, look at this book that some spiritual woman wrote. That right. Tell you why you're, neck hurts it's like slept funny on it last night there's no but you know it's interesting you say that because you're right and every time I tell this story I'm quick to say oh but he didn't smoke does that matter actually when it's all done and said if he did smoke everybody has their own choices and even for me and we'll talk later about me having multiple sclerosis first people are like do you know what happened no I don't if we want to go by my lifestyle which is ironic because I've seen in this or read about this a lot of people with MS, they were very active before this happened to them. I ate well, I lived well, I was a giving, loving person. There was no negative markers where you could be like, oh, I kind of see why that happened to you. You cannot see why it happened to me, I cannot see. And so it makes you realize how precious our bodies are and at the same yeah. time, and that anything can flick over and your body can no longer process it and keep it in balance. Because I feel like it is about balance. And I don't know how I got my body out of balance. I don't know. Um, I eat well, but that doesn't mean was I still not having an allergic reaction to something. We don't, we forget our skin is our biggest organ. Was it something that I continually put in my skin that just kind of overburdened my immune system? We literally don't know. And that desire to always figure out what happened. How that happened to you? Does it run in your family? It does not. And even if it ran in the family, it had to start somewhere. So it's interesting. I guess what we're saying that we're really saying, how can I avoid that happening to me? What did you do so I cannot do it? And I'm like, well, good luck with that because I did everything right. <laughs> you know? That's absolutely brilliantly put, Francesca. I think that it is. And back to your point about um, did he smoke? That would have been my first question in right. my head, right? Right. Right. I got to my kind of 100%. 100%. That's an inappropriate question to ask. Remember that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, and what? like if you'd said yes he did smoke I'd have been like oh well then yeah you know or, yeah, or like yeah can't be too surprised oh, huh? that's terrible you know like right. what it's a strange thing we do you know I heard something that really helped me this is many 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 years ago maybe when I was studying okay. biology at university which was that there are so many um chemical reactions going on in our bodies like billions and billions of things happening in every second that mm-hmm. it it's a miracle that we're, that something's not going wrong because Fair enough. Uh, you know what I mean it's a miracle trying that, to maintain that balance at all times with all these differing factors that are going on you don't yeah. know what the trigger is and with that said I think you bring a very good point to why we need to get out of the blame game <laughs> right For, to ourselves that's why we're able to do it to others so I don't even take it as people being like rude and judgmental they're scared and so if I can somehow blame or attribute it to a certain behavior maybe I can protect myself and my mindset has completely changed since being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and even my approach to that because what I was taught initially is that as we hear the the phrase autoimmune meaning my body is attacking itself right so that in itself is upsetting and devastating oh my gosh I'm not even loving myself I'm hurting myself so much that I'm making my body shut down so that adds to mean emotional trauma, which releases yes. chemicals and releases things that weaken your body. Yeah. Right? 
So that's not helping me. But what I've been learning with time is it's not traditional doctors might call it autoimmune because they don't know how to recognize it. But as I keep learning and finding people healed themselves, reversed it. So technically there's no cure. So we could say reverse their MS symptoms. They become symptom free. What I'm starting to learn is that they're saying the body is not attacking me. It's still attacking a virus that the doctors are not able to recognize. Because the doctors can't call what this virus is, they're like, your body's attacking yourself. My whole world changed when I realized, oh, no, it's not attacking me. There's still some type of virus that we can't test for, that it can't recognize. And it's actually fighting to keep me strong and to keep me viable. My whole relationship with my body changed after that. It changed from betrayal, so why are you attacking me for no good reason, to thank you for fighting the good fight when I doubted you. Thank you for still trying to keep some semblance of balance. Thank you for not allowing this to tip any further because my symptoms have not progressed. I'm at a very kind of steady space where I can work on my healing. Thank you, body. Thank you, thank you, thank you for loving me so much that even when I thought you gave up on me, you did not give up on me. Absolutely changed my attitude towards my body, my health, uh, my interactions with people. And I am so grateful for that little bit of knowledge that had such a shift for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, the blame game, that, that idea mm -hmm. that you're not loving on your body enough, that it then starts attacking you. I think well, right. I approach my um, business from three angles. The first one mm -hmm. is science. Okay. And so if I put, and then the psychology and then the story or kind of the supernatural the stuff we can't explain. Right. So in the science area, I, I, like the science part of me is going, it's just organic reactions that have gone different in a different direction or in, but what we're doing is we're dumping it in the psychology area, which it, it doesn't actually belong there. What does belong there is not blaming yourself. So you increase your strength. Agreed back Agreed. into the science area and then you've got more cortisol in your body which is frying your adrenals as well exactly and all this you know uh, uh, and lots of adrenaline in your body which is frying your adrenals the cortisol's having an adverse effect on you as well so it's like separating these things out in the most kind of scientific way that we can so that then we can come back to that kind of psychological relationship that we we have with our bodies i really like the way you've you've put this but Mm -hmm. The blame game is an is an incredible thing that's so so prevalent, especially in my industry at the moment. And I'm working I'm working through it myself. So listening to you say this is helping some more of the jigsaw puzzle come into place. It's like not only have you got an MS, but you're also hating on yourself. Exactly. Same which is releasing chemicals, which is actually a self fulfilling prophecy that my body is breaking down because I broke it down because I didn't support it. I didn't feed it well. I didn't, and I, I don't, in no way am I going to make it seem like it's that simple. Like everybody, hey, get the happy gene and you'll be better. But you will be much better than if you belittle yourself, if you keep yes. stressing yourself over things. People are like, well, it's just thoughts. Well, I think we all agree stress kills. And the example I love to use with people is everybody acknowledges, including science, about the placebo effect. So you mean to tell me, you gave somebody a sugar pill and they actually cured a legitimate issue. So what you're telling me is my body is a pharmacy. My body absolutely knows what to do and how to put it in the right uh, concoction, the right mix to heal me. Tell me my mind is not powerful because placebo should never work on planet earth. If that were true, if my mind were not powerful, 
placebo should never work ever. I don't care if you tried it a thousand times, there should be a thousand no's. It might be a small amount of people who did it, but that alone tells you there's power in the mind, there's power in thoughts. Yes. And that's my go-to when people are like, I don't really believe it. That's okay, you don't have to. <laughs> your body <laughs> believes it and your body's manifesting what you believe. So that's up to you. <laughs> Without blame. Right. Without blame. Let it go. Keep it moving. <laughs> Without blame. Without blame. Without blame. Beautiful. Um, what do you remember of your dad? Like if you were to remember him? Actually, the memories that I have, um, that's so funny when you said that, because the first thing that immediately came to mind, his complexion, which was super beautiful and brown. Mm. And actually the way he smelled, and I'm sure a lot of people can understand, there's smells that you associate with certain people. And it could be something as simple as the lotion they use, but the lotion on one person smells different than on another person. So I guess after this amount of time, since my father passed, if I think about him, it's gonna be the physical aspects like um, his skin, which was beautiful and flawless, and also the way he smelled, like it's a very distinct smell to me. The things that really resonate with me was his love of logic. He, and I think that's why that is like my default setting is logic. And I feel like sometimes people misunderstand that. They think I'm cold or I'm not really taking into account emotional factors. I absolutely take it into account, but I also know that emotion at that time will not serve that solution process. So there've been times like, damn, Fran, have a heart. Um, I got a heart, it's beating, and I also have a brain and I'm using that first. So for me, when I think about him, the logic, thinking things through. I think his love for arts. He's the one that introduced me to classical music. And I always thought it was interesting that he liked country music. So I'm like, really? An African from West Africa is into country music. He loved Willie Nelson. And I guess country music is very genuine and very heart-centered. So I could kind of see that. But growing up, I was like, who listens to country? How do you even find that out? <laughs> well, it's interesting because recently I've seen some, um, um, what do they call them, tiny desk concerts. Oh, um, NPR, yes, love yes. them. And um, I forget the lady's name, but um, she was talking like a lot of the instruments of um, um, uh, come on, Sarah, country music okay. uh, have their origins in, in Africa, actually, like banjo. Now, isn't that interesting? And um, yeah, so they actually, they are actually African instruments that came here, uh, not came here, but came to the USA. Right, right, right. Um, and um, yeah, so so I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm pulling things out of the air here. <laughs> Always trying to make connections. Making connections that we hadn't made before. So that's actually very interesting. Mm -hmm. And when you said, I guess technically not surprising because we're talking about the origins of pretty much everything, but I've never actually heard that before. And I kind of like that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll just, uh, I'm just going to quickly, forgive me, please, listeners, while I, NPR, <laughs> tiny desk, banjo player, and her name is, no, that's not pulled it up yet. Um, no, okay, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it's 100. a really beautiful that sounds fantastic. woman who sings it is absolutely amazing. Um, so let's move on. So, um, Oh yeah, there's one other thing you mentioned there, which is about not 
not talking too much about Sierra Leone, and this is just a general <laughs> comment uh, about children and parents, is up until a certain age, I don't know, probably in our teens or certainly when we hit our, when we become an adult. Mm -hmm. But when we're young children, a lot of the stuff we do with our parents is about processes, shoes mm. on, time for dinner. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's often not that much connection that sometimes comes later. I mean, I noticed my mm -hmm. parents are, uh, God willing, still alive um, mm -hmm. and I love them. Um, but with my grandparents, I noticed that like, when I was young, they were just my grandma and granddad or mm -hmm. my grandparents. But when I was when I became an adult, I just really appreciated them for the person they were and really okay. enjoyed their company so much. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's just something there to be noted uh, about. Yeah, when we're young, it's just very much process-oriented parenting. Mm -hmm. So, lovely. So and but to add on to that, I think what? the other thing that's important is when people say process-oriented, but it's also the example that they show us. Because you're right. Now that I think about that, my demeanor, my disposition definitely comes from my father. And it's not because he told me that. It's because that's what I saw. Yeah. And that's what I gravitated towards. So... To me, in my life, such a short time, he's definitely had a pr profound effect on me and the things that I do and the things that I've achieved. And that always amazes me that that short amount of time was enough to leave such a positive, impactful reality to me, to my life, that it really, I guess in a way you can almost say it's a guiding force. It's an underlying philosophy. It's an underlying consideration that I have in all that I do. Amazing. All that DNA, all that observation, all that mm -hmm. nurture. It's incredible. So what's his name? Hadi Mohammed Konate. Hadi Mohammed Konate. Okay. I can't say Konate without Japanese inflection. That, I'm here for it. I love it. You put a little <laughs> extra twang on it and I'm here for it. <laughs> well, dedicating this episode to Hadi. Okay. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Oh. Um, it's Rhiannon Giddings is the woman who plays the banjo and tells all the stories about the origin, oh, and, uh, the the route from mm -hmm. the US. Okay. All right. So what happens next? Then you're in California. You're 12, 13. Your mom becomes mm -hmm. a solo parent. What mm -hmm. happens next for you? Um, got a scholarship to go to an amazing boarding school, and that was such a game changer. All girls stayed there during the week, came home on the weekends, met amazing people. Actually, to this day, I'm still in contact with some of my teachers. Um, one on Facebook, shout out to Mr. Mello, because I hope you plan on listening to this. Um, <laughs> also to Mrs. Newmar, who's my AP history teacher. She, oh my gosh, she has been so amazing. When I graduated from San Domenico, I went to Howard University in DC. When she came to DC, she made it a point to come to the university and visit me and you know, talk to my teachers who are like, it's university now. We really don't know who this person is that you're so excited about. She's just an ID number to us, but she was like the proud mom. <laughs> I taught her, she's really great. How's she doing those government classes? <laughs> so that had a profound impact on me. And I went from one extreme. So I went to an all girls boarding school, which is very international. And then I decided to go to a HBCU, which is called Historically Black College and University. And I want to say, oh, I forget how many altogether. Maybe there's about 118 in the United States. And these were colleges and universities that were made specifically for African-Americans when they were not able to safely attend white universities and colleges. Of course, there's an option to go everywhere or anywhere. But for me, it was important to go there and kind of get that balance. 
mm-hmm. and kind of learn a little bit more from, in terms of cultural perspective, just, I wanted, everything about me is always about balance. So I went to the all girls school in California. Now I want to go to the African-American school in Washington, DC. So literally from one part of the country to the other part completely different experience. But what I liked about that is I felt it gave me a level of balance. Growing up around girls, all girls, and basically people who are in different levels of privilege, not in a disrespectful way, but I'm just saying it was a privilege to be there. You have a different mentality. Me going to Washington, DC, going to Howard University, which is a very prominent university out of the HBCUs, gave me a completely different perspective, a completely different insight. And it allowed me to develop different skill sets. I feel like that's why I started learning things like how to read people, how to read situations, how to negotiate, things that are so critical in life. And it's almost kind of the things like you either get it or you don't. You really can't even teach someone that. I was so grateful for that. And interestingly enough, that's when my inner tomboy started coming out because I was around It turns out, as it is still today, I gravitate more towards men for friendships because we just have more in common. It's easier for me to talk to them. There's, that has just always been my nature. So the tomboy came out of me, the roughness came out of me, the um, I'm not easily fooled by what a man could say, um, that came out of me. And I'm so grateful for that because I think that my inner man coming out (laughs) allowed me to attack challenges in a different way to go further to not be intimidated to not fall into the traps that um just society I'm not even gonna put it on men but just the way our society is that a woman is better quiet not seen in the background I was like I have as much validity as any man around me I I again do not need your validation I think that's where the whole thing of I got this came from not saying I'm you know, I'm capable of making mistakes, but saying I do not need an external person to tell me I'm worthy or I'm good or I can. I know I can because I want to. And that's where that came from, that my my years in D.C., Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't get those memos either about being quiet. Lots and lots of masculine energy over here and uh, yes. not always appreciated. Agreed. And you know what? Again, like being a legend, I don't need you to appreciate my strength because this is allowing me to move through this world. It allows me to navigate. I I don't see men looking for our permission to be awesome and to be ambitious and to be strong. Get it or not, you're going to do what you need to do. And that's my attitude. And that doesn't mean to the detriment of others. It means I don't need you to smile and tell me anything. You're cute. You're smart. You can do it. Appreciate your observation unnecessary but appreciated and that's where I've always been with that there's no way I'm going to ever not be thankful for someone supporting or saying you're amazing or you're great you got this absolutely appreciate you recognizing that however (laughs) it was not necessary for me to move forward in my quest your quest all right ah that's what it is quest legend myth get into it all right so next on your quest so what did you read at university so when i was at school i studied international business because i always that's what i always wanted actually when i was in high school i thought and was leaning towards journalism and communication because i've always liked speaking i've always liked talking then i wasn't as interested i felt "Mm, i would like business i was already interested in 
I hadn't traveled at that point. I didn't have my passport. But international relations and things of that nature always intrigued me. So I did international business. And I didn't finish school in D.C. I actually finished my degree in Georgia. And I went to Mercer University and I got my degree in organizational leadership, which is basically a business degree. But it was on a level that fit me so perfectly. And as it says, organizational leadership, be that a nonprofit, a business, a group of three people, whatever you want to quantify or qualify as an organization how to lead it, how to do everything from change management to just getting the most effective results. And that was such a wonderful match for me, especially before I went to Japan and I'm working with people in different capacities and especially working with, as you know, working with men in Japan who are not accustomed to seeing women as counterparts or even, I can't say I was ever above them, but I'm teaching you. So there's a level of respect you're going to have to give me. And that organizational leadership background helped me to, I think, smooth that. And also, it's just my nature. I genuinely love people. So you can look at me crazy and be like, she's a girl. What is she going to teach me? More than you know, that's why I'm here. But what I'm teaching you, you don't know. So you will listen and you will enjoy. <laughs> I mean, what you've described there with the teacher student dynamic is that mm -hmm. we call it a power dynamic so there is a power mm, dynamic, also a client service provider dynamic which is especially strong in uh in japan but when Agreed. you're uh, when you're in the classroom or the teaching room or the training mm -hmm. room it's very very much uh you you're the boss and i think um i could be wrong as well um i'll just say this as an aside mm -hmm. um i think us foreign women may get a little more uh respect in that regard mm -hmm. and especially I think for me as well I don't know about you but I was always visiting people to be a teacher mm -hmm. or to be a trainer or to be now a coach and facilitator mm -hmm. I'm always visiting so you have this kind of guest feeling anyway mm -hmm. if you're working mm -hmm. full-time somewhere I think that the uh, the dynamics become a little bit more interesting to navigate shall we say <laughs> well you know what I found interesting there were cases where I guess it's true in any case, until you feel confident in yourself, people are going to treat you any kind of way. When you understand, I know my value. At first I felt, um, after Shinsei, actually Shinsei when I was working there with that company, which was a great job, I wanna say it was like um, 90 minute classes. The job I had after that where I was working at Toshiba, which was an amazing job. They paid for my Shinkansen to go from Shinagawa to Shizuoka, I stayed in a business hotel. I took a taxi to the client's location. I felt a lot of pressure because there was a lot of expectation on me. Those classes were three hours long with three people. You can't fake that. You have to give value. So I think that's why now, even now, I'm so easy when it comes to communicating because I absolutely know how to navigate that dynamic. Yeah. I absolutely know how to make people feel comfortable and bring out the best because my thing is please make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying. Your mistake is not, oh, you made six mistakes today. You're not doing good. Please make 12 so I know you're really trying. <laughs> so you're thinking, I don't want to make as many. I'm like, more, more, please, more. That's how you learn. So once they realize like, oh, he's absolutely okay for mistakes. I would rather you talk your head off, make all the mistakes and I understand what you needed to say. Because as I told my students, you're talking to other non-native English speakers. Why are you trying to sound like me? You cannot. Right? So sound like the person can understand you. This is a German 
someone whose um, German is their first language, you're talking to someone in Singapore, communicate. And so once we kind of establish, like, I'm here for that communication. I'm not here to ding you. And once they opened up and they know, I like I said, I genuinely love people. So I'm going to want to know, what do you love to do? What do you love to talk about so we can go from that? So I was very happy to be the highest rated teacher, trainer within my company. And I was very happy to know that once I got my diagnosis, I was actually in Japan at the time. I didn't have my diagnosis, but I came home because it was just getting too difficult for me to navigate Tokyo and the stairs and the train station. And I came home and I was home for about two years and my boss who was Canadian knew why I came home, but he reached out to me in 2016, December. And I thought, oh, he just wanted to say Merry Christmas because we kind of stay in contact. And he told me I had to fire a teacher mid-contract. It was the winter holiday. It was in December. He's like, I have no other teachers that could do it. I can't do it because I'm working. Mother teachers have contracts. There's no time for him to get a new person because you would have to train them. And then you have to get them to the clients locate. There's, it was just too much. And he asked me, is there any way that you would consider coming back to Japan to finish this contract that already started? So already it's a teacher, it's a class that's already started. There's expectations that are already there. We're halfway through it. When he asked me, of course I was excited, but at that time I didn't have the diagnosis of MS, but I'm using a cane and I'm like, I always wanted to go back to Japan, but I imagined I would be fully restored and healed. So I would come back the way I left, stronger or as strong. And I thought about it. He said, the offer was, I will pay your airfare. I will pay your hotel. I will pay the taxi to get you from the hotel to the job site. He paid for my breakfast and my lunch. All I had to do was pay for dinner and get paid. And I sat, I thought about it and my ego was kind of like, oh, but we wanted to be cane free when we went back. And I said, am I really going to pass up an opportunity to do this? And I did not. And that was my first time to fly internationally since I came back. I was a little scared because I didn't know how my body was going to respond to that. And I had to get wheelchair assistance because I absolutely knew for a fact there's no way I'm going to be walking, um, going from gates to gates. So a little bit hurt my feelings um, that I had to do that. But I was like, that's ego versus opportunity. When I got to Japan, I had the most amazing time. I feel like... I don't know, because I was so excited. I kind of feel like the country was so excited I came back. I don't know. I feel like the entire country was loving on me. Like that, welcome back. Basically, they were like, oh, our daughter, you're home. Yeah. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm talking about from immigration, they were smiling and helping me. I'm like, y'all never smile. My own immigration in my own country doesn't smile when they <laughs> see everything. My new students, um, they were amazing. My older students, like, you know, they're concerned, but they're so protective. Are you good? Are you fine? When I'm going there, the guards, every time I come in, they're looking, are you okay? I mean, like when I say, in my mind, and because I was projecting it, it came back, the entire country was living on, loving on me. Love it. And the same, I had to get a taxi every morning and then every night to bring me back. And I started having the same taxi driver who was so lovely. And we started talking and my Japanese started coming back. And then he took me to like Zen temples Tuesday nights. He would come to the hotel after work. We would go to the Zen temple and meditate together. He took me back. This is what I'm talking about. Like these types of interactions. 
when I say people were loving on me, I was like, that let me know 100%. Francesca is all present. Nothing has been diminished. Me walking slower with a cane means absolutely nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And that was like my game-changing moment, my coming back uh, mentally and emotionally with like a power, an undeniable like, yes, I was diagnosed with MS and what else? <laughs> it's not a label that I live by. Well, we've kind of skipped that you lived in Japan for 13 years. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, no, yeah. this is this is fine because this is actually way more interesting to me. Just very quickly, how did you, what, what made you choose Japan and how did you get here? Okay, so what happened was, um, I just wanted to live in Japan for one year. That was my whole goal. Hello, actually, 20 years later. Yep. You understand? So you see how, how it wraps you in. Uh -huh. um, my goal was, I just wanted to live one year abroad. I knew I wanted it to be Asia because I knew I was going to go by myself. So I thought I would have a safe and good quality of life. So because I knew it was Asia, um, I thought China was too big, a little bit too uncertain and too many issues. Korea, I have since become more interested in from living in Japan and visiting, but I really had no interest in Korea in that way. In Japan, everybody loves Japan from anime to kimono to sushi. Any, we all know Japan in some capacity. I was like, yeah, that'll be great. I'll go there for one year. And honestly, if it wasn't for the health concern, I would have still been there. That's really the reason why I came back is because I'm not going to go deal with healthcare issues and be working full time to keep my visa valid and catch trains and be depressed and hear news. And that's what I'm not going to do. I'm going to have to um, say thank you for so much. Thank you for all that you've given me. Thank you for the power spots, the energy, the experiences. I have to go. But that's how it started. And I stayed as long as I did because each year I realized I could define and create my own reality. I started teaching English at Nova at a conversation school. I've taught um, at junior high schools, a junior college in Takadana Baba. I did everything, but I really found my happy place doing corporate English and training at Fortune 500 companies. So Sony, Hitachi, Fujitsu, KDDI, Shinsei in Japan. And I was like, oh, this is my happy place. Yeah. I love yeah. the respect that I'm given. I love the value that I'm providing. I'm absolutely in my happy place. And then being able to find my love of Africa and creating my group, uh, that just started because I love Africa and I'm going to, I would put it on my Facebook um, highlights when I was living in Japan. Oh, I tried this new great African Ethiopian restaurant in Nakamegro and everybody said, oh, you should have told me where I want to go. And I was like, sure. I know there, I know Solomon. You said what? I know that restaurant in Solomon, right? Runs that. Exactly. So yeah. please tell him I gave him a shout out. Queen Sheba Nakame girl. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> What's I wasn't called? trying to show any biases. Yeah. yeah, but since you called it, I'm like, yes, that was exactly the one. That's so interesting because yeah. the person who I interviewed before you is super good friends with Solomon. And she had a restaurant in Nakamegaro as well. Oh, interesting. In 2000. And they do Fuji Rock together. So Solomon used to kind of be the, the, the king of the um, uh, foreign food area in- Actually, that would make sense. Fuji that would make Rock. sense. And she was one of the, the vendors there doing the fish and chips. So she's in- That is so awesome. So exactly, yeah. see, I was trying to be respectful and not do any names and any free promos, but you're exactly right. Queen Sheba on the corner, not the Megaro. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's fine. And that's what started it. So I made the group and then that was around the time that they started the African festival and it used to be in Hibia Park. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, Shensei was right across the street from Hibia Park. So that's how I went. And then from what I understand, it's grown so much. And I want to say it's in like Akaringa and Yokohama now. But um, so it was just me saying, hey, here's this restaurant. There's a lot of embassies, African embassies in that whole Meguro area. Yeah. So sharing the different events and things. And then so it went from like five to seven people at that time when I was there. Now my group is at 7,500 and it's people from around the world in there. I love it. I, I mean, so you started Africa in Japan. Correct. I, I absolutely love it because that's just a window that I would never usually have. My world is not that I'm way. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you for that. Thank you for Learning that. Learning so much about Africa and where everything is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well the diversity know. of it. Yeah, the diversity of it. And the, I mean, it's, it's enormous. But as you well know, we don't need to get into this because I want to come back to your story. But it's okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Where we take it. But, I, you know, just things like my education just told me there's Africa. Like another little, like there's there's Wales or Scotland or something like that. It's like, how bonkers is that? Like, so now I'm kind of navigating. I know where Sierra Leone is because Woo-hoo! I also have a, a a contact who I will show you. A, a lady called Tiffany I met in Los Angeles oh, uh, last year who um, has a uh, has a an MPO called Shine on Sierra Leone, and so oh she, nice posting from there it's really nice and she's amazing so um and um so I know that's on the west coast but also I know I'm from Liverpool so I know some of that that the history of the slave trade coming in there as well which I've educated myself on recently again same reason why I don't know much about Africa etc etc so Mm -hmm. I just love being part of that group because I get to to be in contact with you and other people but also so that I just kind of I'm just learning more about things that wouldn't usually be in my come across the radar of course because there's only so much bandwidth we have but if you can see something that you enjoy and that you learn you're like I would have never associated that with it or seen that that gives you beauty and hope then what it's doing is actually turning your changing your internal dialogue not that you had a negative one but now it's so much more rich and full and if you talk to someone you might say hey did you ever know about this and that's what I like I like giving people enough information that they can bring up different things in a conversation you know one time I saw this and I thought it was really interesting yeah or people can look further and be research more and do more or just feel happy for other people winning that we normally hear about the losses and the problems but now we hear the wins uh, uh, yeah I I love this so much so enriching the internal dialogue this mm-hmm. is this is absolutely exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly what I'm talking about. So there's not nothing oh, today. It's just absence. Correct. That's all. It's just Correct. an absence. But like, be happy for other people winning. I was like, where's she going with this? It's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Because the because I get to see all these. Like you just. I, I mean. Anyway, it it sounds so silly. No, I'm I'm you know, happy because what you're saying. Like, no, I'm absolutely happy for your loss of words and your your sense of emotion coming up because you went from not really having an idea and you're like, I know what I'm hearing out there is not the complete story, but I don't know how to fill in the gaps and do I really need to go out the way and it must be kind of hard. And now you have this resource that will constantly share positive things. And, it, and what's really important to me is about 
positivity from Africans for Africans. We know about what NGOs are doing. We know about all these things on the global level, but we don't care what are these amazing young creative people doing in their own country? What are they doing to solve their own problems? How do they express their creativity and their beauty? And there's something that's just so encouraging and satisfying about that. And people don't understand because I literally, I monitor everything that's posted in the group. I personally have to approve it. Well, I actually have some admins to help me, but there's nothing that a few times things slip through, but for the most part, I'm like inappropriate, not interested. There's no value. It's not positive. I've blocked people from the group and there's no warnings when you get blocked. If you are inappropriate, I have no desire to tell you that was inappropriate. You're just blocked. You can't even find the group anymore. Boom. One time. <laughs> so yeah, that's I like it. Yeah, you know, the iron, the iron fist behind Africa and Japan. <laughs> That's so great. I didn't, I, I, I didn't realize you were the actual founder of that, or maybe mm -hmm. I did back in, because it's been going for so long, but Fair um, enough. yeah, I love it. But it's not just, see, here's the thing. It's, it's not just positivity about Africa. Mm -hmm. It's just simply stories of day-to-day -day life. Exactly. And, and P.S., guess what? It's mm -hmm. the same as, you know, that's, that's why I'm at a loss for words. It's like, it just sounds, it sounds silly for me to say, it's great to see the positive stories coming out of there. It just sounds, it just sounds reductive and stupid. And that's what's making me kind of. Let me tell you, it, it sounds so genuine because it's never out there. So you wouldn't know. No. So it, it sounds like what you're saying would sound kind of silly, simplistic, naive. It is not. It's so easy to hear about child soldiers, to see pictures of war, people being kidnapped. We, we see that so easily, so quickly. So no, I do not feel any type of way about you or anybody else who's like, well, I never really thought about the beauty of Africa, the diversity, the creativity, the problem solving. You know, I love when I post something of a kid who made this stunning architectural masterpiece at a cardboard, like, oh my God, you've got this talent in you and the desire to do it all the way up to the PhD students, African PhD students in Japan. Like, this, I want you to see that entire range from kids to adults who are so focused and so much desiring to give back to Africa. So that makes me happy to feel you had a loss of words. So thank you. I, I, thank you for, for putting it mm -hmm. all out there. I, I, I equally love just mm -hmm. the data, for example, seeing pictures of Addis Ababa or just mm. or, or capital cities we don't you, you know I Correct. know New York skyline I know a Tokyo skyline I know right, a right. Seattle skyline right I couldn't I couldn't name an African skyline of course, of right. course. and then you see them you're like they're so stunning and it looks like any metropolitan city like holy cow that's Kenya that's that's Nairobi yeah really I, that could have been anywhere on planet earth where it's a metropolitan city Exactly. Yeah, I love that too. With, but with that flavor, the same as mm -hmm. somewhere like um, uh, Dubai. Okay. You know, it's mm -hmm. got that. It's you can see it. It's a metropolis. right. That distinct. It's got a flavor. It's got that right. flavor of that that particular country. So that would have like no I like that the flavor. flavor stuff like that. Right. I would never get that flavor. Right. I would never get that flavor otherwise. Right. Because, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Keep it coming, gal. Keep it coming. I know you will. Thank so you, let's keep you. moving then. I, um, let's move okay. into. Let's move up to now then. So you were forced to leave Japan because your health started to decline. So mm -hmm. I just, I'm kind of, 
I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about your Mount Fuji story, but you've you've done that so brilliantly. Well, we'll we'll, we'll leave that. I want to come into the present. Okay. No worries. So, um, how, what was the what was the symptoms that started to happen for you where you kind of knew something wasn't was not just you weren't just sick. You were right. I'd actually been managing it without a diagnosis, without a name for about eight years in Japan. And what happened was one particular day. So at that point, I'd already climbed Mount Fuji twice. I was very physically active. Uh, You know, living in Japan, you're walking 15 minutes to get to the train station and 15 minutes to get to work. I'm eating well, so I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. And this one particular day, I was walking and I noticed I'd been walking for maybe about two hours and my right leg, my foot was kind of slapping down. I wasn't, I wanted to place it down, but I just heard like my foot was slapping the ground for lack of a better way of putting it. And I'm like, that's weird. And I thought, hmm, maybe I didn't have the right shoes for that. I could be tired. Went home, went to bed. I was fine. But I thought, hmm, don't know what happened, but you know, things happen. Okay, fine. What happened over the course of years is this issue with my leg, with the gait, with the fatigue was happening more frequently and it was lasting longer. Now I could always rest and resting kind of gave me that reset. But as I said, over the course of the eight years, it it was happening more often, it was lasting longer. To the point where like, I never had a cane when I was in Japan, but I was like, oh, I feel like my balance is, is doing something. And in retrospect, which I didn't realize at the time, there were two times that I fell actually physically on the street. And at the time I didn't realize, but in retrospect, I understood that's foot drop, which is something that happens when you just can't control your foot. So I literally tripped over my own feet on the streets in Japan. Thankfully, both times it was at night. And I always walked the back street. So I was lucky because I had to be embarrassed. Like, oh, wow, the foreigner fell out. Should we do something? Yes, you should look away. That's what you should do. That's the polite thing to do. You're so gentle. No, I'm joking. I think that's <laughs> like, don't look at me. Just leave me alone. I'm fine. Look away. Just look away. Just look away. Are you okay, mom? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but even as this was happening, I've always had things still work out in my favor. So at the time, um, I was living about five stops from Gotunda Station. I was working in Osaki, which is one stop from Gotunda. So as things started getting more difficult for me, I found a way to manage. So in the morning, I would walk to the station. I could still do that, but I would be tired. I would sit at my train station, which I was very lucky because, you know, a lot of the train stations didn't have a place for you to sit. You're standing and that's a wrap. So gratitude, attitude of gratitude has always been my whole everything. To my everything and that was one of the things i was like what a blessing how, how grateful am i that there's a place for me to sit so that meant i'm going to work earlier so that i could have a place to sit and then i'm sitting on the train not a lot of people when i got to go to the station there was a little cafe on my floor on that floor that was open then i would go and sit in there i would get um, an english newspaper get some breakfast and sit so what i'm doing is i'm going as far as i can i take a break so i would eat breakfast in there that would let me sit down for 10 minutes. Then I would take the walk because I didn't want to be on the train again. I would walk from Gotenda Station to where the office was in Osaki. By the time I got there, I'm pretty exhausted. But now I can spend the rest of the day in that one location. So I absolutely found ways to navigate my new reality. But it got to the point where I was like, I can't keep doing this. And especially if I'm not going to go to the doctor here, I have to go home. I had no idea what it was. 
in my mind, I thought, because I'm relatively healthy, that I'm going to go home and we're going to get a diagnosis quickly. And if I have to do surgery, which I've never had surgery, I'm very much the non-invasive person. Like I don't even take medicine when I'm sick. I would rather lay down, drink some orange juice, get some vitamin C. That's my style. So in my mind, I'm thinking, go home. I don't know, six months to a year, we'll figure out what it is. And then I'll go back to Japan because I'll be better. It's not what happened. It took two years of testing. And something that I would love to say to anyone who's starting the beginning um, stages of trying to figure out what's going on with their body, if they have something going on, something that I wish I knew at the time that I did not. When you don't know what's going on and if there's a possibility that's considered an autoimmune disease, understand that you're not necessarily testing to figure out what it is, you're testing to eliminate what it's not. Meaning I'm going to take a test and every time I took a test, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get an answer. I'm going to get an answer. So that was actually very um, draining on me. The disappointments, the continual disappointments if I don't have an answer. I was not appreciative of what it was not. I wanted to know what it was. But if I would have had the mindset that a part of dealing with health is actually eliminating. So it was about two years worth of eliminating what it was not. And I had to go through three, three neurologists to finally get a conclusive answer that it was multiple sclerosis. By I think the last series of tests I did required me to get a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture. They had to literally take fluid out of the spine yeah. to yeah. finally give me that defense. At that time, I'd done so many MRIs. I was literally a basket case. And I think a part of it was just that sadness of how come you don't know what it is? So that's something that I, I would want to say and share with people, like, don't be discouraged. You got to rule things out to figure out what it is. And that was actually very stressful. Once you get that definition, once you get that name, once you get that label, doesn't mean you have to own it. It means you know what it is, so you know how to address it. And that whole process um, was emotionally very stressful. Yeah, there's a lot of emotion. I'm very draining and I was not prepared for that. I don't think anybody could be prepared. The best you could do is be aware. It's not going to be easy. You're not necessarily going to get an answer. You're going to get what it's not. And that could be a long process to finally narrow it down to what it is. Yeah. And that was hard. But once I got the name for what it was, now I can start I guess you could say the official grieving process. I couldn't really grieve because I didn't know what I was dealing with. So I was in this like weird purgatory, like I feel bad, but I don't know what to feel bad about. And I had one neurologist say, I think it's MS. And I was like, unacceptable. I don't need your thoughts. I need a diagnosis. And he was prepared to give me a medicine. Again, unacceptable. You cannot conclusively tell me what I have. And you want to prescribe a medicine that may or not may or may not be helpful, but my liver and kidneys are going to have to work hard to process it. Unacceptable. So now I'm dealing with doctors who want to give me drugs for something you can't tell me I have. That was stressful. So having to be your own best advocate and say, please don't give me anything until I have a diagnosis. And right now I haven't, I've been officially diagnosed two years. I'm not on any medications. I tried one medication once. That was two years ago, um, and it was meant to be a medication that was going to help me with basically walking because I have a problem with tightness in my right leg. 
it was an infusion that took six hours to do. Um, I took it. Thankfully, I didn't have any negative reactions. I also didn't have any positive reactions. End of story. That's the last time I saw my neurologist. I'm not interested in coming in every six months. If I feel something, I'll let you know and I'll come in and I'll tell you. What we're not gonna do is find some things and then get my mind spinning or it's inconclusive. I, I don't wanna hear what you have to say. If and when it progresses, I will let you know and we will go from there. And there's so much fear mongering with it. Oh, it's a progressive disease. Life is a progressive disease. Do you not understand this? Everybody, we're progressively moving closer. So don't make me feel like everything um, is, you know, so dire. Yes, it might be a little bit faster than the next person, but we're <laughs> every day we wake up, it's a progressive disease. Yeah, we're closer to death. Okay, so can't we all just do our best, live our best, respect our bodies? If and when something goes wrong, then let's deal with it then. But stop giving me things in a preventative manner when you don't know what you're preventing. So two years of not taking anything. Oh, look, I've done adaptive golf. I've climbed a mountain. I swam in a um, fish tank with whale sharks. I've done so many things because I'm like, because I can. So what if I sit here and you guys give me medicine and then I get sick from the medicine that didn't help me? And now I can't do these things. Now I feel sad because I still can't live my best life and your medicine makes me sick. Where does that leave me? So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm saying it has to serve a specific and definite purpose for my body. What we're not going to do is prevent some phantom symptoms that have not arisen yet. How, how are you preventing something that never happened? How do you know that's going to happen to me? I know what is going to happen. My body's going to have to process that. What you call medicine, what my body's going to perceive as poison, it's going to have to process that. Yeah. So what happens yeah. when my liver gets weak? What happens when I get a toxic buildup in my body and it's like, hey, we're going to have a different problem. I'm not interested. So I'm going to keep doing me. Being grateful, eating well, laughing, enjoying my best life until my body tells me otherwise and I have to go start the process again. So that's my whole philosophy to everything I do. I woke up, I'm happy, I'm grateful. Let's go. I wonder what thing, what, what I can challenge myself with. What, hmm. My next thing, actually, what I wanted to do for next year was like try horseback riding. <laughs> I have some other things on tap I want to do. Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I love that, this, this idea of serving a specific and definite purpose. Mm. Um, also, there was something in there like that kind of like, you need to tell me that this is serving. It feels to me like your dad's in the room with you there somehow. Right on your shoulder um, all day every day I know I'm feeling day. a little extra feisty too so yeah I think you might be right <laughs> yeah just I, no brilliant and there's just so much emotion in the in the emotional mm. field there as well that came in like that huge wave of emotion um you talked yeah, about actually not expecting that because normally I do not get emotional sharing it again but just thinking about the person who needs to hear this and that person who's going through it and they're not talking about it that's what makes me get emotional because honestly, I've told this story and I'm pretty much over it. They're facts now, but just thinking like someone's going to hear this who's going through it and like feeling scared and doubtful and wanting to give up and do not. It's all about perspective. Your mindset is they're going to tell me what it is. Be prepared for them telling you what it's not. And you having to go from the, this big list and just kind of funneling it down. You have to understand that could be a possibility to your diagnosis. 
because I was not prepared for that reality. And Francesca, I think that applies to so many other areas of life. Mm. It could be your career. It could be uh, having kids. It could be having starting a business. That idea that there's a one-to-one like um, correlation mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. thing and outcome. It, it, it's it's such a it's such a wise, mm-hmm. wise, wise observation to come out of this diagnosis. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that so much. And I appreciate you giving your heart so freely here as well. But also. I also loved how much feisty emotion came into the emotional field then when you were kind of bringing it back round as well. Like, right. Kind of like, I, you know, when I'm taking control back of my body, there's exactly. good to note exactly. that too. You're ta- really taking us on a, on a little journey here as well. Mm, thank you for saying that. Um, thank you for bringing that to the table. So mm. we were talking before we got onto the phone about mm-hmm. um, dating with a disability. So this is... Mm-hmm. These are your words, so I'll right. take your words about disability. So you consider yourself now to be living with a disability. Would that be fair, or is there a different way you'd like to put it? Ah, that's such an interesting way to put it. Um, I definitely say um, I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I do have it's the handicap accessible tag, but I like to say it handy able tag, which allows me to whoever I'm rolling with to park closer. And I'm in a relationship right now with a wonderful man and he calls it my easy access pass. And so he's like, hey, you got your easy access pass. And I was like, you, sir, give me so much life. So the reason why I wanted to talk about dating with a disability or a challenge that anything makes you feel less than is that we think our worthiness is dependent on our external wholeness or how society views us. And that can mean anything. That could mean anything from weight to a disability to anything that makes us feel less than what is commonly accepted. I've always felt strongly about myself and my ability, but when I first came back, I have to say I did, I felt diminished because I felt whoever was meeting me wasn't meeting me in my full capacity. And so that was difficult for me. And I did date and I did online dating and on my profile, actually I was, <laughs> this is how much I'm confident. Girl, I was dating before I even knew what my disease was. I was like, hey, but what I, I was always up front, walking is challenging for me. I walk with the cane. Like I'm telling you what my symptoms are, but I didn't have a name for it. But what I did was when I did my online, prof- online profiles is I showed pictures that showed my joy and my desire to be outside and then to enjoy my best life. So these are things that I've done and actually really didn't go too much into the profile about that. So once someone showed an interest in me, then we would have the conversation. And then that's when I was like, here we go with full disclosure. I'm not putting my whole business out there because everybody doesn't need to know. If I piqued your interest with my lifestyle or the things that are important to me, the words I use, let's have a conversation. When we have the conversation, full disclosure, I'm living with my parents. I'm not driving. Walking makes me tired, you know? So all the things that might be deal breakers, let's talk about that right now. I'll say out of all the times that I've been dating over the years, there might've been one or two times where guys respectfully said, that's not a good match for me. Thank you so much. Absolutely not a problem. That's the other thing. If and when you do get rejection, why take it personal? Everybody's not supposed to like you. So because someone says they don't wanna date you 
or for them that's an inconvenience, respect that honesty and don't take it as a slight to who you are or that you're less than. This is put right. in mind of the elimination process for the deceased. It's like dating is also an elimination process and that's not, exactly not for everybody. And that's their business. And that's nothing to internalize. Yeah. So I was okay with that. But funny enough, when I was not interested, not, not that I wasn't interested, but you know, we had a little lockdown and I'm not, I'm not really checking for anybody. I got bigger issues and, you know, things going on. It turned out to be someone that we've been friends on Facebook for two years. He sent me a friend request two years ago. I accepted it because I absolutely love meeting people. And until you prove yourself unworthy or upsetting and I'll block you again with no warning, I thought, why not? So we were friends on Facebook this whole time, never really interacted. I don't even know if I fully realized that he was in Georgia or if he knew I was in Georgia, but I would say about two or three months ago, his, his post started coming into my feed more and he has a young son. And I was really moved by the interactions. Like every time he's with the son, he's posting pictures, he's showing this love. And I'm like, how beautiful to see this relationship between father and son and him showing his son affection and love and you know, speaking on it. So we started interacting from that. I'm starting to comment more, he's commenting more on mine. And then um, he reached out to me one day and I told him, I tell him to this day, thank you so much for asking. He said, can I take you out for a smoothie? I was like, oh, that was so original. Someone unexpected, I'm here for that. So that alone got me. So I said, of course, then we ended up going on, which I didn't really consider it our first date. I was considering it, you're a good guy, you're interested in me, I'm a good girl to your impression and you're, and you know, we've got this mutual thing going on, we'll hang out. Um, we spoke on the phone many times, liking the energy, but I'm that person who I have to meet you in person to know if your energy is really what you're presenting, right? But I'm like, if you're, who, the face that you're presenting is the same, then we shouldn't have any problems. So came and got me, we went to the park. And when I tell you that was the first, best first date in my entire life. We literally spent the entire day in the park. And I don't know a lot of guys, I mean, guys might try to humor me and be like, yeah, we could go to the park, but they're not gonna wanna spend the whole day. We went there, we played cards. We, he taught me how to play uh, spades. He taught me how to play chess. It started raining, we got lunch, we came back. We're sitting there, we're parked and we're waiting it to stop raining so that we can play chess again. And I'm like, oh, doesn't this remind you like a drive-in movie because we're overlooking the lake. He said, say no more. He pulls something out and he's like, what movie do you want to see? So we literally had the drive-in, impromptu drive-in experience at the park, overlooking the, overlooking the lake. Before we left, oh, I was like, oh, look, there's a swing set and a slide. Can we go over there? He's like, sure. He helped me to get up the slide, bless his heart, <laughs> and slide down. And I'm like, and we have been talking and hanging out every day since then. Oh, beautiful. What's his and name? It really oh, is. I'll say if you don't want to. I just want to you said what? What's his name? Oh, I'm not happy to say. Okay, I'll say Frank. Because <laughs> so I'm going to put him on blast. So Frank, when you watch this, mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you see it, big uh, listen to it. Big props to Frank. <laughs> exactly. Big props to Frank. We're loving Frank. First date. All day girl. long. Uh, he's, the, he's the first date sensei. Um, you know? But actually, and something I want to say that really moved me and made me 
realize how important it is for all of us um, and how we perceive, how we are perceived by others, he said, and I asked him, because I'm like, so what, when you first saw my pictures, did you know I had MS? He said, no, I did not. Okay, so you're seeing me living my best life, and I'm happy. I don't talk about MS a lot on my posts, but when necessary to prove a point or to share or bring awareness, I will. He said, then I realized you had MS. I'm like, wow, you're super active and happy. Like, you're happier than other people I know. So I said, what actually moved you to want to reach out to me? He said, absolutely, your energy and your smile. He said that, and I've never heard a man say, oh, your energy moved me so much that I wanted to see if I could get to know you more. That was everything. That was everything to hear that and for him to recognize like, oh my goodness, she might not have everything she's want, but she's grateful for what she had. And to celebrate that energy in me made me feel seen and appreciated, very much so. Francesca, I love that. And it's it comes back almost back to what we were talking about at the top of the call. It's like that Francescaness mm. of Francesca mm. still remains. I love that. And I love that. Thank you. And that the 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 stuff around it almost, you know, as we're talking and kind of working mm. this through, I imagine like generations and generations and generations go sit mm -hmm. down and going. Do you know what? There's something that about a person. There's the body, but there's something else mm. that's intact inside them. Let's call it a soul, mm. or mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Which you know, uh, there's many different ways to talk about this. But I imagine this kind of core inside mm -hmm. you, and everything mm -hmm. else is assembled around it. And you had that realization in Japan when you came right. and realized that nobody was like oh, we're going to consider you as less than or diminished now because right. back, the Francesca as the Francesca remains. I love that so much. And I feel like this is a really great place for us to start to land the conversation. Fantastic. So with this, so you've got Frank with you now, you've very kindly yeah. shared what it's like dating with, the, mm -hmm. with, the, with a disability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's got a ring to it, right? It does. <laughs> yeah. And um, that the that this wonderful man has has recognised your energy, and that's what he's attracted to, and not your exactly not your cane or not your right your uh, easy park pass <laughs> <laughs> right, which is my favourite. That that makes me laugh. <laughs> be amazing, wouldn't it, if you just held that up in your like <laughs> right. the profile or whatever like that? I've got one of these. Right. Are you in? <laughs> you can walk anywhere. Are you in? <laughs> uh, Anyway, but, um, you know, and I just, this, this, there's so many gems in here. There's so many sound bites, like mm. given value providing, enriching our internal dialogues, um, you know, being happy for other people's wins, even when you, mm. that's not usually what's being fed to you. This mm -hmm. attitude of gratitude, which is, 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 is inherent throughout everything that you say, but also being mm. really frank about your, about how, upsetting and emotional getting a diagnosis can be I mean mm -hmm. that's two years of uncertainty of pain correct of, of, of wanting and just that mindset shift and I think mm -hmm. it's really key here that mindset shift from mm -hmm. I'm going to get a diagnosis today to we're going to eliminate what this isn't today can, can right. perhaps save somebody else anybody me included from a a lot of suffering 
a lot of I suffering. agree, and I definitely hope so. I, yeah. That was my whole point in sharing that. What definitely. Your final words to put out, Francesca. What would be your final wisdom? I think my final wisdom or something I would like to impart on people who are listening, no matter where they are in their life, in terms of if it's an emotional struggle, be it visible or not, whether it be self-inflicted or not. The only way that you can achieve anything worthwhile in life is finding a way to love yourself where you are as you are. I think our society makes us feel like I need someone to love me to complete me or I need to be valuable. I need to be validated. And if I'm validated and someone can love me, then that proves I'm good. You're good right now because you exist. You're good because you inhale and exhale. You're good because you woke up this morning. And find a place to love and honor and respect that because you know what? Like energy attacks like. If you feel you're broken, if you treat yourself as such, you're going to attract broken energy. They might come out looking shiny initially and end up being more devastating to your spirit and your journey. Learn to be happy by yourself, with yourself. Learn to take those tiny wins. It's not always going to be about these big things. I, I made this big, whatever. I could literally get up and be like, it is a gorgeous day. Those birds are really chirping today. <laughs> oh my God, the roses in the backyard. Look at that just blooming. It could be like, oh my God, I got the last bit of that cereal. <laughs> whatever it is, find those wins, build on them and bring that joy. He didn't, Frank never said, well, you know what? You seem like a strong person who's going through something really difficult. He said, you're happy and your joy is what attracted me. Okay, so my gratitude for what I have, not because I have everything, but I'm grateful for what I do have. So I would leave with people for everything you feel you don't have, think about the three things that you do, right? Change that whole dynamic, change that, that momentum that you're creating. I don't, I don't, I don't, I have, I am, I'm going to. That creates a different energy. That different energy creates different opportunities, realities, synchronicities, blessings, whatever you want to call it, whatever religion, whatever deity you're claiming, it creates, I think everyone universally recognizes that gratitude attracts more things to be grateful for. Well, so that's what I'm going to leave my Nona. Be happy, even if your happiness is, I woke up. Be happy. Well, I'm claiming you as my deity and I'm grateful for you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, my love. Oh, And those three things to be grateful for as well. What's your mama's name? My mom's name is Karen. 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 Yeah. Okay. It's got such a weird connotation these days, but hey. I know. So actually, after I said that, I said, oh, okay. Actually, that is her name, but she goes by Anne. And I'm like, especially now with all these Karens calling pops, I'm like, ooh. See, I was thrown off because you said, what's her name? And I'm like, her name is mommy, but I guess you meant what's the name you could call her. <laughs> so, well, well, then I just wanted to invite three gratitudes in as well. And to, to the presence of these lovely people, Karen, Hade mm. and Frank, who have been with Aww, us today as well. How beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for you. So thank you everybody for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of uh, the Legends series. Um, I believe that there are many, many ways to lead a life. And we just heard mm -hmm. Francesca's incredibly wise and uh, grateful way of leading her life and how she mm -hmm. lives and, and, and still communicates her joy and energy through this um, MS diagnosis and, and how she's still a, a hot sex party who attracts gorgeous men. 
in the middle of a pandemic if I want to get in extra points. In the middle of a pandemic as well. Hey. 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 Oh. hey. Exactly. And um, yeah, and and um, you know, everybody has stories, and I just love telling them. I have absolutely loved telling your story today, Francesca. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. Thank you for and, the opportunity. Uh, this will be going out probably close to Christmas. The next one, okay. yes, this will be out in about Christmas. And mm -hmm. um, so happy celebrations for winter or summer, wherever you are. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm leaving this call feeling incredibly filled with joy, energy, and gratitude. I'm so Thank happy. You, Francesca. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.